Hi, everyone, and welcome to Airwave, a student-led anesthesia podcast for medical students and everyone else who enjoys being on the other side of the OR curtain. My name is Alexa, and joining me today is Peru. Well, hey, everybody. It's great to be back. What I really love about the podcast is that we always try to do things a little bit differently. And I'm really excited to apply what we've learned in previous episodes on induction of anesthesia to a clinical case today. For sure. I mean, learning about the drugs of induction is definitely really important, but it's always so interesting and fulfilling when you get to apply it to the case, which is exactly what we're going to do today. And if you haven't had the chance to listen to the episode on induction agents, make sure you check it out before tackling this case. And now, before we begin, as always, this podcast is not intended for medical advice, just good old-fashioned medical education. Case-based episodes are the best because it's actually what you'll end up seeing in the OR and in terms of your preoperative planning. So without further ado, here's this week's case. You have a 66-year-old male with a previous cabbage after an MI 10 years ago and aortic stenosis who is undergoing a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. The patient has a past medical history of dyslipidemia, hypertension, and recent mild dyspnea on exertion. He denies current angina or syncope and hasn't seen his cardiologist in over a year because of the COVID pandemic. He underwent a tonsillectomy as a teenager under a general anesthetic without any complications. Regarding medications, he's on atorvastatin, amlodipine, and metoprolol. He has no known drug allergies. Preoperative blood work was within normal limits, but he was found on preoperative echo to have an aortic valve area of 0.7 centimeters squared and a mean transvalvular pressure gradient of 42. ECG findings showed left axis deviation as well as EKG voltage criteria for left ventricular hypertrophy. Your preceptor asks you, how do you manage this patient? Okay, so I will be the first to say that I absolutely love this case. One, because I guarantee you that if not in medical school as a resident and as you continue on to your training, you will see a lot of patients with aortic stenosis. It's a problem that is relatively common and very relevant to the practice of anesthesiology. But I also love it because it allows us to directly apply the principles of what we learned in terms of induction agents in one of our previous episodes. And it also allows us to consider our general goals with this patient who also has left ventricular hypertrophy. So a good place to start would be to talk about our considerations for this patient and how his severe aortic stenosis changes our management. Once that's outlined, we can explore the drugs that will allow us to achieve our goals for this anesthetic. Sounds like a plan. And again, once you get further into your training, it all comes down to what your anesthetic considerations are for a patient and what your hemodynamic goals are in regards to these various considerations. So when you think about aortic stenosis, the first thing that should really come to mind is that it's a fixed cardiac output state. So if we go back to physiology for a second and the equations that we all love, we remember that cardiac output is the product of heart rate and stroke volume. But what this also means 
because this patient has a limited valve area, is if they were to ever be in a state of high physiologic demand, such as exercise, they wouldn't actually be able to increase their cardiac output. And that can become a little bit problematic in terms of managing someone's hemodynamics. And if we break down the pathophysiology of aortic stenosis just a little bit further, what you'll realize is as the aortic valve area decreases over time, the left ventricle has to overcome a greater resistance to eject blood forward. It's like if now the left ventricle had to eject blood through a little pinhole rather than a large opening. It's obviously much, much harder. And what that means is that greater pressures are actually required to overcome that. And so the left ventricle is um, a relatively, how can I say, adaptive uh, chamber, and it does adapt. Sarcomeres replicate in parallel in order to generate that extra pressure, and that leads to concentric hypertrophy. And at first, it's great. It allows the ventricle to compensate. It allows it to generate enough pressure to drive blood across the narrow valve. And so your stroke volume and cardiac output is maintained. That being said, while it's initially adaptive, it can also lead to complications because as the stenosis progresses and the hypertrophy progresses, the left ventricle becomes less compliant, and diastolic filling pressures become elevated. And if you remember, diastole is when the left ventricle is perfused. And so if you have elevated end diastolic pressures, that means in order to maintain perfusion to your left ventricle, your coronary perfusion pressures have to be higher. Or if you don't have that compensation, you're perfusion to your left ventricle is actually decreased. And that can actually lead to uh, contractility or systolic dysfunction. And what you see with that is some classic manifestations of aortic stenosis, dyspnea on exertion, syncope, and angina. And while it isn't the case yet for this patient, it's also important to remember that aortic stenosis can lead to other complications, such as other valvular diseases as a result of remodeling of the left ventricle, pulmonary hypertension, arrhythmias, and also an increased bleeding risk. I'm just going to touch on two of the most important points that Alexa had mentioned. The first one being that um, your coronary perfusion pressure is essentially a gradient between your systemic diastolic pressure and your left ventricular end diastolic pressure. And so if your left ventricular end diastolic pressure increases because of that concentric hypertrophy, that gradient becomes smaller and smaller, and your perfusion pressure through your coronary arteries can decrease. And as a result, you can have um, ischemic heart disease, even without any sort of coronary calcifications or that kind of thing. The other point to keep in mind is that those three classic manifestations of aortic stenosis, so exertional dyspnea, syncope, and angina, um, these all carry different prognostic values in terms of five-year survival rate. So if you're interested in talking to your attendings about that, that's definitely a topic worth discussing. But with all of that in mind, we can start to see a few goals that we want to consider during this anesthetic. 
The first consideration is blood pressure. In aortic stenosis, hypotension is something that you want to avoid. And it's because of that same phenomenon that we talked about, left ventricular end diastolic pressure and systemic diastolic pressure, the gradient becomes narrower in aortic stenosis. Not only that, there is decreased contractility in LVH, and so you'll be facing that increased LV and diastolic pressure, which further compromises that. And so choosing a strategy that minimizes hypotension here is key. Another really important hemodynamic goal for patients with aortic stenosis is keeping a low normal heart rate between 60 and 80. And that's, again, because of that really, really delicate balance between myocardial um, oxygen demand and consumption, and also making sure that you have enough time for left ventricular filling. Um, And again, because of the hypertrophy, you will have reduced filling. And so you need to avoid tachycardia in order to allow for adequate filling time. On the other hand, while you want to make sure that the heart rate is not too fast, you also need to avoid significant bradycardia. Because if we go back to our equation, of cardiac output, which is heart rate and stroke volume, we already know that in aortic stenosis, the stroke volume is fixed. And so these patients are heart rate dependent in order to maintain their cardiac output. The third consideration to keep in mind here is that you want to keep your patients in normal sinus rhythm. And it sounds pretty obvious, but this one is fairly crucial. To allow for optimal filling time and contractility, you want to make sure that your patient remains in sinus rhythm and that any abnormal rhythm is treated promptly. Patients with diastolic dysfunction and baseline impaired ventricular filling are particularly vulnerable to to developing intraoperative arrhythmias because they're dependent on normal atrial contraction. And the last consideration for these patients is you want to maintain a normal intravascular volume. In other words, you want to maintain these patients preload. Um, These are patients that because of the decreased ventricular compliance as a result of the left ventricular hypertrophy, they're quite sensitive to abrupt changes in volume. And in order, again, to get as much stroke volume out to keep them on the, um, how can I say, right side, if you will, of the Frank Starling curve, you really want to ensure that they have adequate preload and you do that by maintaining normal intravascular volume. So just to summarize some of the key points, avoid hypotension, keep a low normal heart rate, ensure normal sinus rhythm, and normal intravascular volume. And so now that we have a better idea of some of the pathophysiology that we're dealing with, let's review some of our options in terms of induction agents that we can use for patients with aortic stenosis. All right, so time to pull out our induction medication toolbox. And so again, thinking back to that episode on induction agents, we have propofol, a classic. Um, It is a great, great drug, but it's important to remember that it's a profound cardiorespiratory depressant and it causes hypotension. Another agent that we have is ketamine, um, which is also can be a great option, but in patients with depleted catecholamine stores, um, 
It can actually be a direct myocardial depressant. And on the other hand, it is also a sympathomimetic that causes increases in blood pressure and in heart rate. And from that perspective can cause increases in demand and lead to um, dysregulation of that very delicate balance of myocardial um, oxygen consumption and provision of oxygen. Now, another agent that we have is midazolam um, and other benzodiazepines. And these are great because they're hemodynamically stable, but they also have a slower onset and they don't allow for complete anesthesia themselves. And so you would be remiss to only give midazolam as part of your induction agent uh, because, or as part of your induction Um, simply because it doesn't address all of the five A's, if you will, of anesthesia. And lastly, in our toolbox, we also have Atomidate, which is hemodynamically stable, but it does provide a relatively light plane of anesthesia if given by itself. And also one of the infamous complications that you get with Atomidate is adrenal cortical suppression. So what we see here with each of these induction agents is that they both have their pros and cons, but there isn't necessarily a clear winner. Another thing to consider is that the effects of all of these induction agents are dose-dependent, and it's in this context that, that we can really appreciate the beauty of a balanced anesthetic. So think of multimodal anesthetic strategies. In patients with aortic stenosis especially, it's really important to maintain an appropriate depth of anesthesia because responses like tachycardia and hypertension can precipitate some of those non-atherosclerotic ischemic changes that we talked about earlier. And that's so, so true. A balanced anesthetic technique um, is really what these patients need. And so since you brought it up, let's talk about that for a little bit. And so while they aren't induction agents in themselves, Opioids are great agents to reach for in this context. They have moderate effects on cardiac function when administered at low to moderate doses. And using induction agents um, or using opioids in conjunction with induction agents actually allows for synergy so that you use a lesser amount of your induction agents. And so, for example, you would use less propofol and have less hypertension, which is, or hypotension, sorry, which is what you want to achieve in these patients. And so, for example, a dose of 2 to 20 micrograms per kilogram of fentanyl could be used in the context of this patient in conjunction with another um, induction agent. Likewise, because benzodiazepines result in a minimal reduction of blood pressure, cardiac output, and peripheral vascular resistance, they're also great to use for their synergistic properties. But like we just mentioned, benzodiazepines don't have any analgesic properties and aren't able to render the patient um, unconscious except at extremely high doses. And so these patients will still have sympathetic stimulation, even um, uh, unless other analgesics are also provided. 
And so in summary, in AS, while there is no magic recipe, induction can be safely accomplished with a combination of opiates or benzos, etomidate, benzos and ketamine, or carefully titrated propofol in combination with opiates or benzos. And so you can see here there's a theme of options and a beauty of a balanced anesthetic really coming about. And what's just as important as the choice of the induction agent is managing any hemodynamic effect that can come subsequently. For sure. Anesthesia is really an art, and I think that that's what makes it a lot of fun. Um, and just really using all the different tools that you have in order to achieve those hemodynamic goals um, for the patient. And the other thing that I love about anesthesia, and I've talked about this before, is that it really is a specialty of anticipating what will happen, anticipating a patient's future hemodynamic responses, and then acting to mitigate them. And so what you might see is your staff might give a vasopressor such as phenylephrine or ephedrine preemptively on induction to avoid the hypotension that might ensue despite your best efforts with uh, the induction agents that they gave. And also keep in mind that, yes, this is all fine and dandy for induction, but these hemodynamic goals are equally as important throughout the entirety of the case and on emergence. And so while we talk about this within the context of the induction agents that you give to a patient, when you maintain an appropriate depth of anesthesia, you also need to consider all of these hemodynamic goals throughout the case. And you really want to keep a close eye, particularly on their fluid status and uh, their blood pressure throughout. And there you have it, our first patient case episode. And we hope that you found it useful in terms of thinking about patient comorbidities and how that might inform your choice of induction agents. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. We really appreciate your ongoing support. And keep an eye out for our next episode where we might cover other topics, including neuromuscular blockers. Before we sign off, we'd like to thank our resident content editors, and especially Dr. Matthew McFarling, a cardiac anesthetist at Hamilton Health Sciences at McMaster University. This podcast was, would also not be possible without the generous support of Dr. Daniel Cordovani. And as always, stay tuned for updates on our website and Twitter account, which is at Airwave Podcast. And if you like what we do, give us a rating or a thumbs up. And until next time, keep working hard, stay healthy, stay safe, take some nice deep breaths, and count back from 10.